Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That cold case you're listening to? Nasty stuff. But you know what else is a crime? Missing even a moment of whatever you're doing to go on a drink run. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered in under 60 minutes. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Nate welcomes Paul Reese to discuss his book, The Ox, the authorized biography of the Who's John Entwistle. Email us at LetItRollPodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Paul Reese, author of The Ox, the authorized biography of The Who's John Entwistle. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot for having me, Nate. And so first things first, what does authorized biography mean? Uh, well, in this case, it was done in conjunction uh, with John's family. Obviously, John's no longer with us. Um, so I approached and got permission from his son, Christopher, and also um, his wife, um, his first wife, uh, uh, Christopher's mother. And they allowed me to, to write the book. Uh, they cooperated with the book. Uh, they let me have access to John's archives, um, including... Um, four or five chapters that John himself had written for a proposed autobiography that he never got around to finishing. So it was done with their full cooperation um, uh, and their help as well. I wouldn't have been able to do the book in the way it was without that. Yeah, very valuable stuff, particularly that manuscript of his autobiography. So let's talk a little bit about who John Entwistle was. I mean, obviously, a lot of rock fans are listening and have a pretty good idea. But this is a man that Bill Wyman of the Rolling Stones referred to as the Jimi Hendrix of the bass guitar but that's kind of a double-edged sword. Talk about that and John's struggle with being, as uh, I think there was a sports writer once described himself as the biggest midget on earth, meaning the best sports writer on earth. What's it mean to be the Jimi Hendrix of the bass guitar? Well, that was John's ongoing thing. I mean, he, he was a, a virtuoso of the bass. I mean, when John took up the bass guitar in the late 50s, um, there wasn't really such a thing as a rock bassist. There were just, there was the odd guy who plonked away at the back. Uh, the first electric bass guitars that really only just come into being when he started playing them. 
Um, so it was very much viewed at the time as um, the guy who wasn't good enough to play guitar. And John was um, completely different to that. He was the, he was arguably the best musician or the most naturally talented musician and gifted musician in the Who. So what he ended up doing was turning the bass guitar on its head uh, and he became Pete Townsend literally played the, the rhythm and, and John played the lead uh, whilst at the same time once they got Keith Moon in the band also having to keep time because Moon's timing was uh, famously erratic um, and I don't I think John's ongoing thing throughout his life with the, he was never appreciated for the fact that he was the one virtuoso musician in the band and his role was almost always seen as the bassist and, and he wanted to be recognized as more than that he, he arranged lots of the who's horn arrangements he arranged lots of stuff in the studio uh, in his view he was a lead musician uh, and he was never really credited as such and he was also a really strong songwriter yeah i mean a, a, alongside townsend he was the only guy who also wrote songs for who um there was one or two uh, whistle songs on virtually every Who album. Uh, the exceptions to that uh, would be um, that would be the Tommy. He had two songs on minor songs, but he sort of um, he arranged the whole of the string, the, the horn parts on the record, and then on Quadrophenia, which was a Townsend thing in, in total. Uh, John did virtually all of the horn arrangements, string arrangements on that as well. So he, he worked on that album tirelessly as well. So he was the only guy really alongside Townsend who worked full stop all the time on the Who albums. And so let's go into John's background a little bit. He's from Acton, South Acton, um, west of London, close to Shepherd's Bush, which is the stomping grounds of Townsend and Daltrey. Keith Moon came from North London. And this is a pretty famous sort of rock and roll area that later on the Sex Pistols would come out of, most of the Sex Pistols would come out of the same area. What was it like growing up in that neck of the woods? Well, for what, it's, obviously it's been quite a while since I wrote the book. Um, so I'm trying to delve back into the research. It, it, it was very much, I mean, it was a, the area was, it was um, quite an industrial area. There were, there were lots of, um, the, the one thing that was famous for it was called Soap City because there were lots of, uh, there, were, there were factories where, there were lots of cleaning factories and, and, and laundries and stuff like that in the area. Um, but it, what it, where it was fertile was that, that in common with lots of areas of, of inner cities in England at the time, um, lots of venues sprung up. And as the Beatles, as, first of all, it was beat groups. And then in the wake of the Beatles, lots and lots of venues sprang up for people to play. So what they were doing, um, John... Pete Rogers, they were coming out of school and, and, and they were there were there were skiffle groups and then there were the sort of dance bands and beat groups. So there, there, there were loads of venues that for them to go and play and lots of pubs and lots of clubs. And there became a circuit that was established around West London and then North London where if you were in a sort of beat group or as John was uh, with Pete, a sort of um, easy listening jazz group essentially to start with. They got on that venue and that's uh, on that circuit and that's that's where they were playing. And then there's the who mutated as they mutated into the high numbers. They they joined this circuit where they, there were four or five, six venues that they could play in their immediate area literally every week. And that was a living firm at that time. Yeah, that's a really fascinating thing about this period of time. And, and this ability to make a living as just a local pub band existed for this generation of bands like the who the kinks the beatles were doing the same thing in liverpool but just 10 years later it becomes impossible because of the rise of discotheques and people playing records and clubs not allowing bands to play anything except covers and then you know in very limited areas so it kind of came up in a pretty magical time when you could learn your craft and earn money at the same time and for somebody like john entwistle who's not a child of poverty but lower middle class or upper working class would probably be an accurate description. And he's a child of a broken home. His parents are classic World War II lovers who meet, um, have a torrid romance, get pregnant, have a baby. Dad's off in the war, comes back, doesn't know his wife, and they separate. But his dad was a musician, um, played the trumpet, which was John's first instrument. And I love that John started out singing Al Jolson songs in pubs at age three. So um, gifted musician from the get-go. And there's also a great story in the book that's really creepy and kind of gives an insight into some of John's 
more macabre personality that he expressed in so many of his songs. And do you remember the story about the great grandmother's death and the pennies on her eyes? Yeah, I mean, the great grandmother because she she was um, she was living in the house um, at the time, and, and she she was at a back room at the house, and and John used to to sneak in there, um, and and obviously she was when she was on a deathbed, it was he became quite um, he, he, you know for a young child it was uh, it, it was a, an odd thing he found it quite a macabre thing, and then he he went in and saw the body and they, and they put pennies on the eyes. It was that old tradition, you know, that you, you paid the ferryman, um, and that sort of stuck with him. And I think a lot of that stuff, older relatives that shared the house with you, old stories that were passed down, and um, that became part of John's macabre, dark sense of humour, and certainly. In terms of the way he wrote songs, that a lot of his songs had that sort of dark, twisted sense of humour to them as well. And let's go ahead and hear our first song snippet. This is The Who, My Generation. And this is John Entwistle playing possibly the first bass solo in rock and roll history. The Who, My Generation. The Who's legendary single, My Generation, featuring John Entwistle on bass solo. And we'll backtrack and, and fill in the gaps on the beginnings of their career. But at this point, when My Generation comes out, they are absolutely on the cutting edge of rock and roll, which was absolutely the cutting edge music of its time. And Entwistle is the most cutting edge member. What's the magnitude of that and how did it impact him? Well, I think the magnitude of it is it's just that... that there was no one like them. That there was literally no one that sounded like them. I think they were they were a hard rock band before there was hard rock. They were a punk rock band before there was punk rock. Um, and, and as I said, John Entwistle was, was somebody who revolutionised his instrument in the moment. I mean, people were barely aware that he was doing it. But but my generation specifically didn't didn't have the idea on that single to less than three minutes that you had somebody the bass guitar as a lead instrument, as, as I said earlier, you know, the, the electric basses had barely been shipped into Britain or exported into Britain at that time. And, and he went into the studio and played, as you said, a bass guitar solo. If you listen to what the bass guitar is doing on all of those early Who's records, there's some ex it's extraordinary because it, he does take the lead role and turns and plays rhythm guitar around him and, and keeps the rhythm. So they, they, they reverse the roles of what, Musicians were supposed to be doing in bands, in many ways, that changed the way records sounded at that time because they they, they were completely different from from any other band. I think that them, them and the Kinks probably, at the time, created what we know as hard rock music. Yeah, absolutely. And we talked about the musical dynamic and how it's kind of eccentric with Keith Moon, kind of the over the top frontman of the of the band in a way. Pete Townsend holding down the, the rhythm and Entwistle being the traditional lead instrumentalist. But the personal dynamics in the band were very unique as well. And Entwistle met Townsend before he met any of the others. Talk about their relationship and how they got to know each other and how that relationship sort of was defined early on and, and went throughout their whole lives together. Well, they met at, at grammar school. They were, they were both grammar school boys. Um, Daltrey was in the year above them, so he was older than them. But the, the, the two of them met. Uh, there was, they were neither of them were particularly uh, good sportsmen, and, and it was it was quite a sporty school that they went to. So that they were consigned to, given that neither of them could play anything, they were consigned up to what was called the hockey misfits by their their games master. So it was the lads who had absolutely no aptitude for sport or interest in sport were just chucked to one side to go and knock seven bells out of each of the playing hockey and, and that's where they met and they, they they obviously discovered they got shared interest in music and they began knocking around together and, and, and playing in bands and ostensibly because Townsend was quite um, more of a diffident, diffident character quite a shy character uh, and Entwistle was much more outgoing um, John in a sense looked after Pete I think in, in the early years and certainly in the school years when, when Townsend was extricated from bands or was passed over on bands 
John would always find, always persuade some other combo to let him in and, because he was his mate. Uh, and they sort of looked after each other in that way. And I think that obviously carried on into late life. John saw himself in many ways as Pete's protector. And then when Pete started writing songs and took over the leadership of the band, I think there was a, there was a degree, more than a degree of tension that went with that. Uh, that was exacerbated by the fact that Dolce was... Uh, the school bully and the school tearaway, uh, and kids were generally terrified of him from the grammar school. He'd been expelled. So when he got John into the band, into the band he was leading, John persuaded Daltrip to let Tenzin in, and then Tenzin ends up taking over the band. So you can imagine that the dynamics that went along that all sorts of complicated interpersonal relationships. Uh, and Moon's arrival was uh, probably that Moon became the one that Ent was always closest to, the one that he understood the best. And by the time they're in the Who, they they barely socialised at all. It, uh, that, you know, they they were seeing each other. Obviously, they were playing together a lot, but outside of the band, there was really only at that point um, um, John and Keith that would socialise. That they very much kept to themselves. Other than that, yeah. And the, the the stories of this band. I mean, the Kinks are fairly violent and have a fair amount of fisticuffs within the band. But the Who is on a whole nother level. And the only person in rock and roll history I can compare Roger Daltrey to would be Ronnie Van Zant, the similarly diminutive singer of Leonard Skinner. Yet he ruled that band with an iron fist and literally, you know, imposed discipline with beatings. And Daltrey, one punch knocked out both Moon and Townsend at various points in the band's history, and yet didn't really have any political base in the band. And you know, wasn't the songwriter, and nobody liked him. How did Daltrey hang on through that? And and was there a point in which he tried to take over the leadership of the band and failed? Well, I think initially he was seen, as, he, he thought of himself as the leader. You know, initially it was his band that he bought and was sort of, and then turns and into, um, that it, but they were very much a covers band and Dalton had no aptitude for songwriting whatsoever. So when it became clear, you know, when they, 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 they had management, when, when, they, when Kit Lambert was management, when they, they started getting management and it became clear that there was a songwriter in the midst and that Townsend was the songwriter, with Entwistle also able to, to write the songs, Daltrey literally was forced to take a back seat because he, he didn't have that role within the band. Moon was more extravagant and more naturally um, extrovert as a frontman. So Daltrey was literally clinging on by his coattails. Um, there was a period in the, certainly in the early days, when they they tried out without Daltrey. They played several gigs without Daltrey being in the band. He'd sort of flounced off on one occasion. On another, they just played gigs without him to see how it went. I think it's it's one of those peculiar things that make bands special. That that with Daltrey singing, they were the Who. Without him, they weren't the Who. Uh, and and they eventually had to like and love the fact. That, that they needed a frontman, and, and Daltrey became a great rock and roll frontman. Um, he didn't particularly like the fact that he was subservient to Townsend or Entwistle, but but he had to accept that you know the only way he was going to have a career was by being that. So it, it's almost like it's one of those great things. Bands have to compromise whether they like it a lot, and the Who was one of the great compromises. Yeah, absolutely. And and Daltrey, it's almost as if. You know, imagine if Brian Jones could have beat up Keith Richards. It would have changed the dynamic in the Stones quite a bit. But Daltrey, unlike Brian Jones, did not destroy himself. He he maturely reached his peace with the status and, and, and marched on through. And so it, it becomes Moon who becomes the unstable dynamic in the band. But let's let's talk about some other things that, that made the band unstable. Actually, first, let's hear another song. This is um, one of my favorite John Entwistle songs. This is uh, Doctor, Doctor. From the Who sell out, or is it from a quick one while he's away? I can't remember. But anyway, this is the Who doing Doctor Doctor. was Dr. Doctor by The Who, and I want you to tell us the story of how it was that Entwistle sort of got drafted into writing songs for The Who, but first, we have to introduce the management setup of The Who, 
their trademark stage act and how they got trapped into a financial morass that meant that they literally made no money until they were superstars. How did they get themselves tangled up in this situation? Well, the management that came in, Kit Lambert and Chris Stamp, the guys who who took on the management, they were looking for a band to manage. Um, They were both involved in the film business uh, and initially they were thinking of making a documentary. So they're looking for a suitable band to make a documentary on. And they alighted upon the Who just playing one of their regular pub gigs. Um, During the course of that, they decided that they would be interested in managing the band um, and towns that there was a there was there's all sorts of with the who there's lots of myth making that goes on with the who and lots of trying to establish what's fact and fiction but whether it's apocryphal or not uh, there was a night when Townsend was uh, struggling with his guitar um, he was being catcalled from the audience so he just swung it and broke it um, and that went down so well that Townsend decided to make it part of the act in Townsend's telling, he was very aware of this sort of auto-destructive art form, and he was me. It was a piece of performance art. In um, Entwistle's telling and others, it was completely on the spur of the moment. He just lost his temper, lost his rag, and broke his guitar. Um, when Moon realised that it was, uh, it, it had become, you know, it was a fixture of the set, and it was going down well. Moon set about smashing his drums as well. The only one who didn't get involved in it was Entwistle because he cherished his bass guitars and he, and he wasn't going to smash things. But that became obviously part of the Who's Act, that, that, that Lambert and Stump encouraged them to do it. They would smash, Townsend would smash a guitar every night, Moon would wreck his kit. And obviously the bills racked up when you're having to pay for a new guitar and a new set of drum kits every night. And they just got caught in that cycle. But people went to, the Who to see the Who expecting them to be destructive and things to get wrecked. And they had to pay for it and keep it going. And there was also a complication with their producer, Shel Talmy, who produced the early Who records, also produced the early Kinks records. Inarguably one of the great rock and roll producers of that era. And yet they got crosswise with him very early on. What was the problem with Shel Talmy? How did he get in conflict with Stamp and Lambert? And how did that also contribute to the financial handicaps that we're under. Well, tell me, tell me was bought, obviously was producing them before, he produced My Generation, he produced the first record. Um, Lambert wanted to take over control of that. He wanted to produce the records um, and, and wanted to have sole ownership of the band. Lambert wasn't as, as gifted to produce by any stretch of the imagination or a natural producer in the way that Shell Talmy was, but wanted him moved to one side. So they basically got rid of Talmy, even though they'd signed a contract with him uh, and that Talmy would be producing their records and putting their records out. So it ended up in one of these complicated, but typically the time deals where Talmy retained rights. I I can't remember the precise period of time that retained the rights, but he retained rights and they had to pay Talmy. And and he he took a a percentage of of the profits and the royalties for, for a period of time, I think up and beyond Tommy, which was obviously a huge success. So they were in the hole to him for, for the basic fact that no one had actually recognised the fact that they'd signed a contract with him or they thought they could just get away with it. And, and, and clearly they couldn't. And then on top of all this, they, they have very serious barriers between them and the United States market. Like just ahead of them, the Kinks and the Yardbirds and the Rolling Stones were able to get promotion and singles released and have hits in the states follow that up with tours the who comes along right after that and yet their records don't come out in the states for months and when they do they're very poorly promoted they're on a very backward label in the u.s how did they finally break through in the states or begin to break through in the states well another one of those happy accidents if you will i mean and and the fact that they were the kind of band they were, because yeah, they were they were Decca initially, who just were an old-fashioned record label, didn't really understand uh, how to market a rock and roll band, and and they were they were shoved there and all sorts of strange package tours. The records weren't put in the right places. Um, they they were put on bills that that that, that made no sense whatsoever. Um, 
And the, the idea that the, the Monterey Festival initially was seen as this sort of big breakthrough was sort of seen as this big breakthrough. But it, it was a complete accident that they played with Jimi Hendrix and Jimi Hendrix had shipped over his whole a full PA system, the whole gear, the who were using rented equipment that was cheap. So actually on the day, the Who sounded very, very quiet and, and almost timid next to Hendrix. But what the Who had, the fact that Monterey was filmed, they had the fact that they were wrecking their equipment and they looked, if not sound on the day, they looked like this violent, almost unseen thing in America. That was the first thing. And then obviously they played Woodstock uh, and they were there at Woodstock. They were filmed at Woodstock. Um, even though Woodstock, if you listen to John's version of it and, and John's telling of it, was almost apocalyptically bad. Yet again, the Who were a visual band uh, and, and probably the first great visual rock and roll band. So the sight of Dalton in his fringe jacket, Townsend in his white boiler suit and Doc Martin windmilling his guitar around, Keith Moon, just as Keith Moon, and then this stoic statuesque bass player in a skeleton suit. They just looked like nothing no one had seen in America at the time. And that was the point that lifted them through, that they were unique and they were very visual. Absolutely. And let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, I want to backtrack a little bit and talk about the publishing deal that uh, catalyzed John into a becoming a pop songwriter. To backtrack a little bit back to England, because of these financial holes that they had dug for themselves, because of the equipment smashing and the various contracts they'd broken and lawsuits they'd been into, Sam and Lambert had to get creative to get some cash on hand. And music publishing is where the money is in the music business. Pete Townsend had already established himself as a hip hop songwriter, so most management teams would just you know, double down on that. You didn't see the management of the Kinks pushing, say, Pete Quaife to write songs. But The Who finds himself in a situation where they get a publishing deal for everybody to write songs, including Roger Daltrey and Keith Moon and John Entwistle. How did that go? And how did Entwistle distinguish himself? Well, initially, obviously, as you said, it was supposed to be that all three of the others were given a percentage of the publishing and and, and they sold their publishing and were meant to write songs, which which... Turned out to be not the case. John was the one who applied himself to it. A, because he was quite diligent. B, because he was a gifted musician. Uh, and C, because he actually wanted to write songs. Uh, in the case of Moon and Daughter, I think there were, there were two or three risible efforts that actually John helped them to pull off uh, and, and contributed to their songs. They weren't actually songs ever written by Daughter or Moon. They were, they were end whistles help. But he, he applied himself and, and he... He, he got himself in the position where he wanted to write songs. He locked, he set up a little bedroom studio in, in the house he had with his first wife, Alison, the first house they had. Um, and he, he, he applied himself to writing one or two songs for each Who record. And it was almost like that, you know, although slightly more advanced, I would suggest, than the, the, the Ringo song on the Beatles record, that there would be one or two of these quirky, macabre, blackly comic songs that John would deliver on every album. Um, Boris the Spider being the first uh, and arguably the most well-known. And then things like Cousin Kevin and and, and on, on the Tommy record. But there would be a slot set aside for the Daltrey songs on each record. And let's talk about the Tommy record. What was the context when Pete Townsend decides to write a rock opera? How did the band react and how did the world react? Well, the band relaxed with complete and utter bemusement. I think I think it's, it's a great thing. Townsend is one of these visionaries, and, and Townsend thought the Who wouldn't have been the Who without the way Townsend thought. They wouldn't have got to the level they did. He thought in grand visions. So starting, as we meant, with Who Sell Out, the, 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 this idea of a whole pop art concept record. Um, before Sergeant Pepper had happened, he was thinking in those terms. Um, Post-Sergeant Pepper, he wanted to do something even grander and actually make it an actual story so he had sketched out this whole story which absolutely no one in the band or kit lambert or anybody connected to the who truly understood i'm not sure townsend ever truly understood what it was or, or grappled with it and the record that they put together there was a thematic and a story running through it um but it was very convoluted and it didn't really make sense on record i'm not sure it did on film but but townsend thought in those ways and and that's what tommy became the idea rock opera was a thing that that was a, a phrase that uh, kit lambert chucked about i believe this idea it just because 
Lamb was a fan of opera, and it was just one of those things that this sounds like rock opera. Whether it there was no there were no arias in it, there was there were no musical interludes in it. It just sounded good, so they ran with it. And and ten, the same with Tens with the album itself. He had the bare bones of a story, and they put a load of songs and lyrics together that sort of fit a story that didn't really work as a narrative. But it doesn't really matter because just the phrase rock opera sold it. And the music was great, so it worked as songs and as a performance. And, you know, in the course of this show, I've been researching all different kinds of music and learning more about opera. And one of the opera fans that's sort of a source for me, he's insisting, like, look, dude, opera's rarely made sense as well. And he actually <laughs> writes the Tommy fairly high as an opera compared to what we see as these great masterpieces handed down from on high, which were generally slapped together, um, you know, to entertain the, the punters and, and make a buck. But I want to go back to another story that's really key to Entwistle's life. This is John Entwistle is the man who named the band Led Zeppelin. How did that happen, and what and what almost came to be with that? Well, in one of the in one of the perennial periods that, that I mean, this there was an endless recycling of the fact that Entwistle or Moon or both of them together would want to leave the Who because they felt undervalued by Townsend and or Townsend and Daltrey. Um, and they'd had a, they'd had an argument at one point because they. Moon was entertaining Al Jardine from the Beach Boys uh, and they turned up late to a gig. Townsend had done his not. And Daltrey and, and Entwistle and, and Moon had had a conversation about we should we should look to get out or do something on our own. Um, at the same time, Moon had played on a um, on uh, Jeff Beck's, Beck's Bolero, and, and, and he started talking about getting involved in a band with Jimmy Page uh, when Jimmy Page was on the point of leaving Led Zeppelin. So the, in a roundabout way, this conversation started... Leaving the Yardbirds. Yeah, leaving the Yardbirds, sorry. And, and this conversation started about Page wanting to form a supergroup. Um, Moon was sort of approached to be the drummer in the supergroup and was interested. Beck was going to be the guitar player. And they went to a Moon suggested Entwistle. Um, it's never been entirely clear whether Page or Beck were interested in Entwistle or they approached Entwistle. But Moon certainly suggested Entwistle would be the bass player in the band. And when that was suggested by Moon to Entwistle, he said, it would go down like a, he said it would go down like a lead balloon, which is where it ended up in the conversation and where it ended up that Page took it and ran with it as Led Zeppelin. <laughs> so accidental uh, moments of great contributions to rock and roll. And so all through this period, Entwistle and Moon are just, you know, tight as butter and toast. They hang out at the, at, you know, at the speakeasy and the bag of nails and all these famous rock clubs. They're out every night together. But then something happens in 1970 that forever kind of separates them and sets the future course of the Who in a tragic direction. What happened and how did Entwistle react to it? You're going to have to remind me of that, Nate, because as I say, it's been literally it's, um, When Keith Moon runs over chauffeur Neil Boland yes. in, a, yeah. in a nightmarish fiasco. Yeah, I Keith, I think John had started to, to, to this, as the rest of them had, to be be concerned about Keith Moon and also to not necessarily distance himself, but be wary of him because there'd been multiple instances where, you know, in, Moon was self-destructive to an almost sociopathic degree. Um, and that they, they they had a roadie and a tour manager that they all, you know, that was part of the Who, the Who fabric. Uh, Moon set off one night to go to a, a nightclub in, in, in Watford of all places. I think it was Watford of all places for, for no apparent reason and ended up judging this talent contest there because Moon would literally go to the opening of an envelope if there was alcohol and a good time involved. Um, went into the nightclub. Because he was had no minders with him, and he was, you know, Keith Moon of the Who and the Big I Am, and and being ferried around in a Rolls Royce, uh, the locals in this sort of small suburban town started giving him a little bit of uh, abuse, actually in the nightclub, good natured and otherwise. Uh, and Moon went to flee, flee the scene, and and he ran ran behind. He couldn't drive, but in order to get away with his girlfriend, he leapt behind the wheels of the car, the steering wheel of the car, and attempted to drive off the car park. Uh, tour manager is out the back trying to keep uh, the locals away, uh, and and ended up getting dragged by the car, and Moon went over him uh, and and killed him. And it's one of those really dark. 
Um, again, one of those those stories connected with the Who that it's almost impossible to entirely get the bottom off. Um, but Moon did get, I say, get away with it. It was Moon was an accident. Uh, pleaded that it was an accident. I'm not entirely sure whether everybody looked at the fact that Moon had probably had an awful lot to drink at the time. But but he got away with it. Tour manager loses life, and and but no one in the Who really ever truly forgave him of that. And I think it was the point, certainly in Entwistle, where it was a, a pulling back from Entwistle, of, uh, and and Entwistle not not long afterwards, Entwistle got married, uh, and and wanted to to keep a distance from him. That they weren't ever joined at the hip to the same degree ever again. And let's go ahead and hear our next song. This is one of Entwistle's contributions to the Tommy soundtrack. This is Co- cousin Kevin, one of two very dark songs on the Tommy soundtrack, both of them by Entwistle. The Who, Cousin Kevin. was Cousin Kevin off of the Who's Tommy album, one of Entwistle's two contributions to that. So there's two, you know, Tommy the blind, deaf and dumb boy is molested by relatives. Townsend struggled with those songs, drafted in Entwistle, who had no problem. Child molesting is one of those topics, sort of like racism, that sort of taints everybody who talks about it or gets involved with it in any way. Is this something that came out of Entwistle's personal experience or just something he was able to imagine so vividly? I think more than likely it's something that he was able to imagine very vividly. I think he, he just had a macabre sense of humour. Right, if that, I, I spoke to um, Alison, his, his first wife. They, they went to school together as well at grammar school. Uh, and she had a twin sister. Uh, and she said John used to was quite a, a gifted caricaturist and uh, drawer. And she said, for the school magazine, he drew a caricature of, of Alison's twin sister uh, that she said when she saw it, that the twin sister didn't speak to him again. She was appalled by it. It was it was so vicious. Um, he also installed a one way mirror in, in the bathroom, uh, uh, one of his houses. He, he just had this uh, it, in in the light of today, it would be seen as crossing a line that you, you couldn't get back from. But but this very very dark twisted sense of humour. So, you know, as you said, Townsend wanted a character created, couldn't write a song himself that was dark black uh, enough. Handed it to John, and he rattled it off in an afternoon. Um, it was that's just the way it was. Everybody I spoke to in connection with John said he had that sort of very black humour that that. As I said, in the present light today and, and seen through today would, would have got him into an awful lot of trouble, which was sort of just passed over uh, back in the 19, late 1960s and early 70s. Yeah, it was a different time. And The Who is about to go into this era of enormous stardom where they're playing stadiums. They're getting half a million dollars to play you know, enormous venues all over America and Europe. How did Entwistle react to that and that that level of fame and, and the Who's, you know, rock and roll lifestyle with the banquets every night and the groupies and et cetera? How did he deal with that? Uh, like a picking clover, I think, would be the the easiest way to start. You know, you mentioned right at the start, Nate, that he he, he was a typical um, child of war, war parents. Uh, he went through rationing. Um, his mother used to take him out shopping on a on a Saturday, and, and he was allowed to buy one thing, which would be a, a I think a little knight figure. He would get a knight or a soldier figure. So he was very used to being um, rationing. Didn't sit well with him, you know, the idea that you were you were kept from having things. So John was the sort of guy when he had money, he wanted to have precisely everything he could get his hands on. He didn't want to be rationed in any way, shape, or form. So once money was available to him freely, because the Who hadn't really earned a great deal of money up until the point of Who's Next when they start, as you said, playing stadium. Um, and he spent everything he could get. It, it, it literally passed through his hands like water. Anything he wanted, he bought. He didn't stop to think 
of the consequences of it. He didn't stop to think if he was able to afford it. He just bought things and acquired things. Um, famously, most famously, or probably the house he ended up in, uh, where he went off uh, to find with Alison what she thought was a little tiny cottage for them to summer in, and he ended up buying a, a 72, 64, I can't remember the exact number of rooms, mansion, uh, that ended up being a, a millstone around his neck financially for the rest of his life. But that, that's just that he acquired bass guitar after bass, hundreds of bass guitars, costumes. He just collected things, collected stuff, collected people and spent money as if it was going out of fashion. And this is also a period in which, you know, when the Who's working, they have a certain dynamic and, and they're mostly functional on the road, even with Keith Moon in a trapped in a deadly downward spiral then there's periods when they're off the road and they're you know kind of Entwistle and moon in particular are at a loss while townsend's working on epic projects and daltrey always managed to seem to keep his personal life together how did Entwistle deal with moon's decay and collapse and eventual death i think with a lot of guilt attached to it, i think that that, that... As I said, they, they kind of he kept once once Entwistle was was married to Alice, and I, it didn't reign in his behaviour. Entwistle was two distinct personalities. He was this guy who saw himself as a rock star, and and when he was when the rock star suit was on, it, it was almost as if the home life did not exist in any way, shape, or form. When he was at home and in in this domestic environment, he was a guy who liked to potter around and read the newspaper eat fish and chips, have a model train set, uh, and and be that. He, he was very much schizophrenic in that sense. Um, but he didn't hang out with with, uh, with Keith Moon as much. You know, where he used to be at, at Moon's beck and call, the two of them would be out all the while. He kept a distance from that. And he didn't, but he, at the same time, he, he found it very, if he was at home for any length of time, he hankered after being out on the road. Uh, and Entwistle would think nothing of piling into the back of his Bentley, chauffeur Bentley. He bought cars as if they were going to out of fashion as well, although he never learned to drive. And, and going into London and, and having nights out and, and, and doing whatever you would expect a rock star of the 1970s to do, um, he got bored very easily. Um, I think there was an enormous, an enormous amount of guilt attached, though, that... Um, he kind of let go of Moon. They all kind of let go of Moon. Um, uh, and the, and Moon drifted off to go and live in the States, in Malibu. Uh, and I think there was that sense that, 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 that they all could have done more for Moon. But particularly in Entwistle's case, I think I think he, he felt an awful lot of guilt. And then almost as if he'd lost a little brother when Moon passed away. And he'd also lost a musical partner that provided him and Townsend with this absolutely unique chemistry. And the, and the Three surviving members of the Who decide to soldier on. They put out a couple more albums after Keith Moon dies. They keep touring. They bring in Kenny Jones of the Faces and the Small Faces to take Moon's place. But, you know, and this is somebody they knew who was a mate, who'd had comparable life experiences, came up from a similar part of the world, but didn't fit in musically in the same way. How did that change the dynamic? And how did Entwistle have to adapt to this new musical context? Well, that's a great point. I, mean, I think that that's the, that is the point we come back to. It's that peculiar, unique chemistry that makes bands great. Um, the Who, with Moon, Daltrey, Entwistle, Townsend, four completely diametrically opposed characters who didn't necessarily get on with each other. In some cases, didn't like each other, but were a perfect unit as a band in the same sort of way as the Beatles were, Zeppelin were, and other great bands were. Um, Kenny Jones technically is arguably a better drummer than Keith Moon, certainly a more reliable drummer than Keith Moon in terms of keeping time and a great drummer in his own right. But Moon added this sort of wildness to the Who um, and Entwistle enjoyed playing with that. The way Moon played in the fact that he didn't play on the beat, that he left all these open spaces because of his sheer erraticism that, that, Entwistle fill those spaces and it allowed Entwistle to play and in the, the, the parts where Moon should have been putting down a beat, Entwistle was allowed to do his thing around it. Once Kenny Jones came in the band, came in the band, and it was much more 
traditional rock band format, I think Entwistle found it much more difficult to play off that because he wasn't used to playing off someone so disciplined. And it almost made it that he had to be slightly more reined in and, and disciplined himself. And and the whole band were jarred by it. And ironically, most of all, Roger Daltrey. And Daltrey was the one who had the most was most antagonised by Moon's hijinks and Moon's ill-discipline, but probably missed him as much as Entwistle in the sense that he felt that that The Who became just another band, too regimented, uh, when Kenny Jones was in the band. Uh, um, And he and Entwistle equally missed Moon for different reasons. And so there's this long period, you know, they they struggle on with, with Kenny Jones, do a couple of poorly received albums, have a ghastly tragedy in Cincinnati where a number of fans are killed in a stampede and then take a long pause and officially break up for most of the the 80s. Eventually they come back together and have these very lucrative reunion tours, but Entwistle never really recovers or adapts. You know, Townsend has this famous overindulgence and, and drug rehab experience. I don't know that Daltrey had ever struggled with those kind of issues. Entwistle's name was the ox because nobody could drink him under the table he could party for days if need be but eventually um that fish and chips and you know snifter after snifty of, of brandy and nose full of cocaine catches up with him let's hear our last song this is um the who doing john entwistle's heaven and hell which was the opening track on his first solo album smash your head against the wall but this is the who doing it live at leeds was the who opening their legendary live at Leeds set with john entwistle's heaven and hell but entwistle goes through this period where you know he he is alive and active mostly healthy and functioning through the 80s and 90s but he divorces his first wife there's a second wife and then a third girlfriend he puts together a band with joe walsh he's got his own solo bands he, he tours with the who but he never really pulls back and how did that grind him down? I think the the image of John, that John Entwistle created for himself, the reputation that he created himself, is what grind him down. Because, as you said, he loved, he liked being called the Ox. He liked the fact that he was seen as indestructible. He loved being a rock star. Uh, I spoke, as I said, Christopher's son. I spoke to at length for the book, and and Alison, his first wife, and lots of other people who were around John at the time. Um, he reveled in being a rock star. He loved being a rock star. He loved everything about being a rock star. He liked being recognised. He, he liked the fact that Pete, you know, he, he could walk into a room and and people would give him drugs. And he was, but and, but there was an expectation that went along with that, and, and an image that he felt he had to live up to. And that's fine when you're in your thirties. You can probably get away with it when you're in your forties, but the older you get, the wear and tear starts to take effect, and and that's ostensibly what happened to him. He's his body. When you when you become early fifties, mid fifties, um, and you've spent twenty, thirty years drinking everything that's put in front of you, putting anything you can up your nose, and having a wretched diet and being a chain smoker as well. Your body starts to, to to give in, and that that's what happened to him. He, his hearing had gone first. He was he was famously deaf, um, but then his heart started to suffer, um, uh, and he stopped. But the, where they they previously said that John, you would never know whether when John was was drunk, you would never know when he was under the influence of everything that became gigs, who gigs and solo gigs, when it became apparent that that he he was he was he was struggling, or that he was not capable of doing what he did, and and that became a more regular thing, and and it, it basically ended up as a, a sort of vicious circle. He 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 didn't want to stop, but he needed to stop, and he he simply couldn't. 
And you're mentioning his deafness kind of brings up something that I found kind of poignant in his later years. What he had been a pioneer of amplification. He and Townsend had been the first patrons of Jim Marshall and the Marshall Amps and the Who's sound and his thunderous bass sound was very much of a trademark. But in his final years, as he deafened and had access to more and more equipment, he would show up on these later Who tours with this incredible rig. And it caused a lot of tension with he and Roger Daltrey. Talk about that and how that affected Entwistle emotional, emotionally. Because it, it really, to me, was sad and felt like he was kind of being put out to pasture. Well, the, the, the genesis of it was, was way, way, way back when, when him and um, Townsend first started, um, you know, using Marshall Amplification. And, uh, and they almost, what, what Townsend described as an arms race, Entwistle would buy a huge amplifier, Townsend would buy a bigger one. So Entwistle would buy one bigger than that. And that sort of went on all the way through the Who. Um, but once they started to get into stadiums, the first thing was that Entwistle had a backline that they, they, the, the Who Road crew called Little Manhattan because it looked like the Manhattan skyline, it, this big towering wall of amplification. Um, initially for show, initially because, you know, it, that, that was who he was. But as time went on, John found it difficult to hear himself and he, he needed to be louder and louder so he could actually hear what he was playing. Um, and Dolph had always had sort of had this spiky relationship with all the members of the band but and, and famously moaned about most things, but he moaned particularly about the volume that Entwistle played at and, and was continually asking him to turn it down, didn't want him to play as loud. Um, and so... Usually John's reaction to that was to turn it up slightly louder. But but it became this thing where I think in terms of the who, it, it, the, the Townsend and Daltrey began to see it as quite quaint uh, and, and more sort of patronising about it. So they would both be quite patronising about the volume that he played at and the way that he played and, and, and then became more and more patronising about the fact that he was the only member of the band that drank. Uh, and he began to be referred to as sort of... Um, more in a pitying sense than he did in a, in a sort of respectful sense. And I think he was keenly and acutely aware of that. Um, and certainly I think the last four or five years of John's life, uh, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a sadness to it. There's an overwhelming sort of sadness to it. The idea that, that there's nothing glorious about it. it. It's, it's very much this case of a man who basically got trapped in a role he couldn't get out of uh, and, and was sort of seen the way that the least the way he would least want to have been seen by the others as sort of you know the the the, the passenger or the guy that they were carrying along uh, and, and was given the sense that they were doing tours because he'd run out of money and they were helping him and i think that the sense that he was sort of this sad charity case which yeah it was desperately sad and you talked about this schizophrenia between his you know stable steady man at home and this wild man on the road but by the end of his life um he's in a relationship with a woman named lisa who's living with him and it's kind of like the party never stopped and there's no refuge there's no sanctuary it's just endless chaos and partying non-stop how did that wear him down wear down his relationships with his family and tell us a little bit about what happened in las vegas at the very end well, I think it's, a, it's just desperately sad the last few years. It, it is, it's almost like, it, well, it is. A man creates an image for himself. You know, the, the actual John Entwistle was probably as much the guy who was at home, you know, and, and was domesticated, loved his family, but also loved being a rock star. So he, the rock star took over ostensibly. Um, he ended up in a relationship with... Um, the partners get ever younger. You know, I think he's one of his greatest regrets probably was that his childhood sweetheart, Alison, that they didn't stay married and that he, he left Alison and he left Christopher. Um, the girl he ended up with, Lisa, had been Joe, uh, Joe Walsh's partner. Um, John ends up with her. She's, she's much younger than he is, is also a bit of a, a bit of a tearaway and a, and a, and a wildfire. Uh, and they end up ostensibly just hold up at John's mansion, spending vast amounts of money on throwing parties, cocaine, all the rest of it. Christopher does quote, I think Christopher's son came in to, to manage the estate um, during the last years of his life. 
Um, I can't remember the exact figure, but but Christopher quotes how much money he found was being spent on things that John's accountant would say were not tangible, i.e. drugs uh, and, and drink and things like that. Um, and John, in, in the, the last years of life, confided in one or two people that he just didn't know how to get outside. He didn't want to be with this. This he, he wanted to get away from this toxic relationship with him, but he felt he had to have a young, a, a young woman on his arm because that's what was expected of him as a rock star. I mean, it's, it's desperately sad, desperately tragic, and, and also ridiculous in in lots of ways. But that's how it ended up. When they go out to play in Vegas, they've started another tour, which to all intents and purposes has been arranged to bail John out of yet another financial black hole that he's found himself in, that this sort of endless cycle that he would earn lots of money with The Who, then spend it and then have to tour again with The Who to to refill the coffers. He gets to Vegas. Um, The first thing he does um, when he gets there, he arrives... um, 24, 48 hours before Dorks in Townsend, and he hooks up with um, uh, what, what's euphemistically referred to in Who Circles as an exotic dancer. Um, it, it was a, a woman or a girl that he'd met before when they were in Vegas. You know, the, he would have various people, women he would meet up with when he was on the road, uh, and they spend the night together the drinking um, cocaine. He, he, they go up to Hemp Whistle's room, and, and he'd had He'd had a medical before going to Vegas, but he hadn't had a heart scan. And, and if he'd had a heart scan, he would never have been insured to go on that tour um, because it, several of his arteries were blocked. He was basically a walking time bomb. Um, and it, although it wasn't, it's been put out across uh, in, in some circles of the story that it was a cocaine overdose that killed him. It, it wasn't. He, he had a heart attack. Taking cocaine that night clearly didn't help that, but nor did the fact that he was smoking 50, 60, 70 cigarettes a day uh, and basically existing on a diet of fried food. Uh, and he, uh, he had a heart attack during the night and died in his sleep at, I think it's 57 years old, isn't it? Which, um, And he probably had the body of a 77-year-old man by that point. Wow. Yeah. So it gets heavy at the end. Um, but it's an incredible tale. And the man accomplished so much when he was young and contributed uh, to the progress of human happiness enormously. I mean, millions of people were touched by his music. Hundreds of bass players were inspired by his playing. Basically, every heavy metal bass player that came along in his wake and hard rock bass player that came along in his wake was influenced by his work. So, you know, Entwistle paid a heavy price for his fame and fortune. Um, and we all benefited from his gifts that he, he shared with the world. And Paul, we all benefited from you telling his story. The book is The Ox, the authorized biography of the Who's John Entwistle. My guest has been Paul Reese. Thanks so much for coming on and telling us this complex and fittingly dark story. Thank you very much for having me tonight. It's been a pleasure. Keeping your feet warm, dry, and comfortable is top priority with people from all walks of life. Boltfoot.com features 100% American-made socks with a wide array of styles so even the most discerning sock connoisseur can find their perfect pair. Nate wears Boltfoot socks on his tiny little feet when recording because they keep his toesies cozy. The best part is, that 5% of all proceeds are donated to charities for veterans. Boldfoot.com. Grown here, sewn here. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at literalpodcast.com. Next week, Nate welcomes Charles Fairchild to discuss his 33 and a third book on Danger Mouse, The Grey Album. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? 
not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.